Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing on this Monday. I'm Brian Curtis reporting. Asian equity markets edge higher this morning as some of the doom and gloom talk subsides. The PBOC says get used to money market volatility in China, and China makes it a little easier to buy electric cars. And a big question looms this morning. Why did Wall Street rally after what appeared to be a weak jobs report? And would the soft jobs numbers get the Fed off track in its tapering program? I don't think so. Uh, what we would need to see for the Fed to really alter that tapering schedule would be for the weakness to show up in other measures of the labor market. So not just in payrolls, but the household survey, I think, would need to weaken. We'd need to see some, some uh, confirmation in jobless claims. Barring that, if it's just a couple of soft payroll numbers, the Fed tends not to react very much to that. That's Dean Mackey, chief U.S. economist at Barclays. Guests this morning on the program include Satyajit Das, author of Extreme Money. We used to hear a lot about the BRICS, uh, those big emerging market countries. Das will explain why the hype has all but disappeared. We'll also be hearing from our correspondent, Barry Wood, about the U.S. payroll data and what it means for the economy and markets there. And for a look at markets more specifically here in Asia, we'll be joined by Patrick Bennett, foreign exchange strategist at CIBC. Let's look at Asian markets, and they are all higher this morning. The Nikkei up 174, that's a gain of 1.2% to 14,636. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up three quarters of a percent. In Seoul, the Kospi gaining about one quarter of 1%. The dollar yen shows uh, the, the number at 102.46, so that's the yen weaker, and that is usually a pretty good sign for risk being back on in markets. The dollar 102.46 Japanese yen. The euro is now 1.3619 U.S. and the pound is trading at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 73 cents. This will be a telling few days because we'll be very interested to see has the mood really calmed? Is the market rally of the past couple of days, uh, both here in Hong Kong and around the region and also in Europe and uh, on Wall Street, is that rally over the past couple of days the shape of better things to come, or do we uh, return somehow this week to correction mode? And it will be interesting to hear the testimony of the Fed chief, Janet Yellen, before Congress. We go back to Mr. Mackey. He was asked what would be key in what she says. I think the key issue will be how sensitive is Fed tapering that schedule to the economic data? And have we seen enough for the Fed to start thinking about a pause? Our view is, she will say, not yet, not at this point, that given weather conditions, given the, the natural volatility of the data, it's not surprising that we've had some softness of late. That shouldn't be enough, in our view, for, for the Fed to stop. The nearly 3% gain in the markets on Thursday and Friday was the S&P 500's best two-day performance in the past four months. The Dow had been down 7% before the volatility lifted. The U.S. jobs report Friday night our time was weak, just 113,000 jobs created. PIMCO's Bill Gross told Bloomberg's Tom Keen he thinks the fears are here to stay, and it's because of debt levels. And it's based primarily, in our view, on, on uh, structural influences and the inability, Tom, of debt, of credit uh, to um, to do what it's done over the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, you know, credit expansion, uh, and that includes all multiple forms of uh, credit, whether it's bank credit or household credit, credit cards, student loans, etc. Um, you know, it has risen at a 5 to 10 percent rate prior to Lehman, and since Lehman, it's risen at a three to four percent rate you can't have a, a a strong economy unless 
there are willing borrowers and willing lenders, and credit expands in order to expand GDP. It it just doesn't happen that way, and and we've had a tepid credit growth right. uh, ever since Lehman, and uh, that continues going forward. Dean Mackey from Barclays says a lot of jobs are being created, but it's just not easy to fill them. We are seeing more and more job vacancies. Uh, unfortunately, the, there, there is some mismatch between the requirements of many of those jobs and the skills that, that many of the unemployed have. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the jobs are being filled quickly, but there, there are a, num- a lot of job vacancies out there right now. Mr. Gross thinks that so-called financial repression, that means uh, low interest rates and returns, will be with us for a long time. I think uh, financial yeah. repression will be with us for uh, 10 years or so. You know, it took uh, perhaps 25 or 30 years since World War II until we peaked uh, in terms of financial repression, until Volcker ended it all with high interest rates in 79, 80, and 81. So that was a long stretch. And what? so we're going to be financially repressed for decades. So he goes on to explain a little bit more about financial repression. As I mentioned, uh, when the Fed and other central banks bring interest rates down so low, particularly for savers, they get very little returns on their money in the banks. So again, financial repression, low interest rates and returns. I think it simply takes a long time. You can look at the pension fund industry as an example, Tom, in which they lower their estimated returns for their, you know, balanced portfolio or whatever from eight and a half to eight to seven and a half to seven to six and a half. Um, you know, it, it takes a long, long time for investors basically to give up on the old history. And I think it'll take a long time this time, which means to a certain extent they overspend and they overexpect going forward. They think that education and retirement is basically paid for when it won't. Be. And I hate to be gloomy, but yes, for the next 10 years, the oldsters, and I'm in that camp, are going to be disappointed in terms of, you know, the policy rate and the financial repression and all of it that uh, comes from it. So now we get into the pithy comment section of Money for Nothing, and we welcome first Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good morning, Barry. Well, good morning, Brian, and thank you for that compliment, but I can't... Um I can't match Bill Gross. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> nobody expects uh, you or I to, but we can chat a little bit about uh, the conditions that we see as journalists. Uh, the interesting thing about the jobs report, uh, it, it wasn't great, but it, it wasn't as bad as it looked at first. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I think you're right. I mean, it was 113,000, but uh, that was, um, you know, I look. Friday was a huge surprise on Wall Street because given that data, you would have thought the market would tank and the correction that we had seen earlier in the week would continue. But we reversed. We had Thursday up and we had Friday up. So I think it's a conundrum. I'm not sure what it means, but all I can say is, Brian, what a difference a week makes. It's almost as if the correction here in the States is over and the emerging markets have sort of turned up. But as to your question of what that job data really means, I don't have a good answer for you. Well, here's my take. Uh, At first, it looked bad, and the market did sag. But then the market came back. And so if you looked inside the the report a little bit, you did see actually quite a few construction and manufacturing jobs created. Yes. And you saw a loss in government jobs. And, you know, people don't care quite as much about that. And retail was down, but we knew that because of the bad weather. So once you sort of balanced it all up, the gains and the losses and the pluses and the minuses, it didn't actually seem as 
is bad. And then I guess, as you mentioned earlier on Hong Kong Today, there's also a little bit of a, of a fillip in there that maybe this will cause the Fed to slow down on the tapering. But a lot of economists don't think so. Yes, well, I, that's certainly my view as well. I think that, uh, as you said at the top of the program, this is an important week because we're going to get some very important clues from Janet Yellen. She'll be twice on Capitol Hill for several hours altogether. And I think she will reveal much more of how she is thinking, not just that she's going to be in the Ben Bernanke camp, but how does she really answer the question of a 6.6% unemployment rate? How does she see tapering going forward? She'll have to answer these questions. I think that'll be something the market will really respond to. Yes, you'll have to explain more clearly uh, what might get the Fed to change its program. I'm sure she'll be asked a few direct questions on that. Um, And what also was kind of interesting about the jobs data was that the unemployment rate went down, but the participation rate went up. So you, you couldn't you know, like before, you could blame the unemployment rate going down because people were dropping out, but you couldn't make that claim this time. So it all sort of points to a little bit of noisy data, mixed data, and we don't really know yet what's uh, what's happening. Yeah, I, I really do agree with that. I think that, um, you know, you, the weather was factored out in terms of that uh, employment data, as you mentioned about the participation rate. So, you know, what are we to do with a 6.6% unemployment rate? Maybe, as you have always pointed out, we should look at the 10-year. And here's the 10-year down at 2.68%. So the yield is down. Bond prices have rallied. And remember all those things about the bond market was going to collapse. But I think we've got to wait for more data. And we've certainly got to wait for more data to see if this rush of cash out of some of the key emerging markets is over. Yes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, they also saw a couple of days of respite. Uh, and so this week shapes up very interesting. Does the EM route continue? Uh, does the, you know, or, or, or does this recent period of calm persist? Is volatility down? What does Yellen say, um, you know, on Wall Street uh, and Europe? Do we see, okay, that we had that correction. It was five to seven percent. Now we're back to the halcyon days and the sun is shining. Or do we go back to, <laughs> yeah. or do we go back to, you know, a little bit of scary edge to the markets. What do you think? Well, I think I'm optimistic because um, initially I thought that when we spoke seven days ago, I thought we were going to have a terrible week. And it just seemed to me there were too many clues. I mean, what the Turks had done and, you know, really doubling short-term interest rates, what the South Africans had done, it looked to me like this was going to be a momentum play that had some distance to travel. But that hasn't been the case. And I think there is calm. My own view is I've got a sense it's over. And we've had a correction. Um, You know, look at Twitter, for example. Twitter is a San Francisco startup, but the the price went down, but we sort of weathered that storm. That didn't do anything. We, We look at General Motors. They had a very poor profit statement with a new chairman, but nonetheless, that didn't affect the market. So I, I'm rather optimistic, thinking that uh, things don't look bad at all. Okay. Well, Barry, thank you very much. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, we sometimes think, you know, not much changes, and boy, time goes by fast. But you look at last week, a lot happened last week. So it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what it looks like when we speak again next Monday. Thank you, Barry. Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. <laughs> 
Well, I say good morning now to Patrick Bennett, foreign exchange strategist at CIBC. Patrick, thank you very much for coming into our studios. And good to see you. Um, how are you feeling this morning? How does the market look to you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, I think, uh, just as we've been uh, hearing, there's a lot of uh, influences going on at the moment, and it's sometimes difficult to you know, to pick the right path. Uh, you know, we believe there's a, it, uh, you know, discrimination. Discretion is uh, is very important in the in the current environment. That we can't treat all emerging markets the same. We can't treat all uh, dollar currency pairs the same. It's uh, it's very important to look a little bit deeper than just on the on the surface. Now you have been a dollar bull for quite a long time. Uh, how does the dollar look at the moment to you? Uh, yes, been a dollar bull for a long time. It's uh, against some currencies. It, it's done well. Uh, the Australian dollar has been an underperformer in the last 12 months. The yen uh, also. Uh, but if we look at something like the euro, it's been very stable, at least for the last uh, few months. We still like the dollar overall. We, we still think the US economy is outperforming uh, a number of the other G10 economies out there. But it's a, again, it's a case of picking your, uh, you know, picking your fights or picking your battles. Yes, the Australian dollar actually has perked up just a little bit in the past few days. Uh, I see that Mizuho is saying it's a false dawn. It doesn't indicate that China's healing and getting better. And it doesn't mean that the Australian economy is really back on the mend. Uh, it was down around 86 or so, now up to 89 and a half cents. Uh, what do you see happening among the so-called commodity currencies? Yeah, look, we see the Australian dollar peaking out probably just in the in the low 90 cents and it would be another good level to be to be selling again against the dollar the the economy faces faces challenges not just from uh, from slow or moderated uh, commodity demand but also from from restructuring away from the a heavy uh, mining and investment uh, cycle but uh, the, the the so-called uh, commodity block the Canadian dollar the New Zealand dollar and Australian dollar again uh, as we were speaking we have to look at them all uh, quite differently uh, New Zealand's soft commodities are, are still in very high demand uh, particularly out of China, where you know, demand for protein is, is high. Uh, Canada is, is, is doing well, uh, looking for uh, moving in the Keystone Pipeline uh, into the U.S., which will uh, help to correct uh, some of the gap between the, the cost of their oil. So, again, it's a matter of, uh, of looking at them uh, all uh, individually. Now, if we do break down uh, some of the emerging markets, places like Argentina, Turkey, Ukraine, Thailand, they've seen plunging currencies. However, they seem to have endured them uh, at least um, okay, uh, at least at the end of the week, things settled a, a bit. Uh, is that part of your differentiation of EM? You've got to look very carefully country by country? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the emerging economies with, with strong fundamentals, and here in Asia we would say China, Korea, Taiwan, uh, you know, have outperformed and, and will continue to do so. The fact that uh, some of the other economies that you mentioned, their currencies have sold off, is, it shouldn't be discouraging. In fact, we should be quite... Uh, we should be quite happy that the pressure valve, which is a, a weaker currency, is actually working. Uh, if we consider back to, you know, people have tried to draw an analogy back with, you know, 97 and other times we had fixed exchange rates and uh, we didn't have that pressure valve working. Now we do have it working and I think that's something we should be encouraged about, but certainly we can't uh, lump them all in uh, together. A couple of other news items this morning. The PBOC, the Central Bank in China, says volatility on money markets uh, should be tolerated. The central bank says that that is necessary to manage liquidity to rein in credit growth. And also the president, Xi Jinping, said that in terms of reform, the low-hanging fruit has already been picked and it'll be a bit more difficult moving forward with reform. What does he mean? Look, I think he's being very, uh, you know, very forthright, very uh, honest about uh, what challenges are, are facing. Uh, reform and restructure is, is very difficult. There's always a, a cost involved with that. We've seen a lot of concern about the you know the so-called shadow banking market 
some concerns about these wealth management uh, products uh, potentially failing, that it didn't happen. But we like what the, the PBOC and the administration is doing, uh, telling, telling banks, telling financial institutions that uh, no longer can they be seen as a cheap source of, uh, you know, of funds uh, you know, ad infinitum, that uh, markets have to be you know, more concerned about uh, the, cost of, the cost of borrowing, the return, on, uh, the return on lending, and we think that's a, a good thing going forward. Do you have any strong thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, Bitcoin fell 8% uh, just in the last day or two. The Mt. Gox, uh, the the big Japan exchange, halted withdrawals. The exchange says it has some uh, technical difficulties. What do you think about Bitcoin? Look, it's uh, you know a very difficult uh, you know circumstance or currency, if you, you want to call it that, to to even understand. Uh, and we don't uh, we don't we don't cover it uh, we don't cover it uh, either individually. And I think it's one of those things. If you don't know enough about, then uh, then steer well clear. Okay, how about gold? Gold <laughs> is up five forty this morning, twelve sixty eight. It's come up about a hundred dollars. Uh, is that telling us anything? Look, gold's done well, hasn't it? Because it uh, it did sell off uh, you know quite uh, quite strongly against uh, against a stronger dollar. It's coming back against some of this uh, uncertainty. Uh, we would think, though, that uh, some of the money that's gone into it over the last uh, week is, is probably uh, chasing some of that concern about emerging markets, and we don't expect that to be sustained. Okay, in 20 seconds, your best investment idea of the moment. Uh, long China. Uh, we still like Long China. We like the currency. Uh, we've liked it for some time, and uh, I think it continues to appreciate uh, under the uh, influence of uh, reform and restructure in China. All right, Patrick, thank you very much thank for you. joining us. Patrick Bennett, foreign exchange strategist, CIBC. DOS is next. If a fire breaks out in your building, stay calm. If you decide to leave, carry your keys, mobile phone, and a towel and use the nearest stairway. If there is smoke in the stairway, use a towel to cover your nose and mouth and try another stairway. If there's also smoke in the other stairway, return to your home immediately. Close the door and seal it with tape and towels and call 999 for help. Good morning to you. 21 minutes after 8 o'clock, we say good morning to Sajaji Das, ex-investment banker and author of Extreme Money and several other interesting books on money and capitalism. Uh, das, good morning to you. What's on your mind good this morning. morning? Well, I was interested in listening to your previous guests talking about emerging markets. I think one of the key things is obviously this crisis, which is brewing, is going to be one of the features, at least of the next three or four months, and it ties in quite nicely to the whole taper tantrums and will they or won't they, which is going on in the developed market. And I think that's going to be sort of the theme du jour, if you like, for the first few months of this year anyway. Are we coming into a period where the next reforms that need to be made, that we're not at a good time for it with money uh, maybe being drawn out because of the tapering process? Look, I think uh, it was interesting that the Chinese president talked about low-hanging fruit. I think the emerging market low-hanging fruit has been well and truly picked. It was picked well before 2007, and we've had a second sort of, uh, if you like, crop because of the cheap money that's flown in from the quantitative easing and other things like the low interest rates, which has attracted capital into emerging markets. But now I think, uh, and I would probably differ a little bit from your previous guest, And I agree with him that the emerging markets are different, but, you know, it's a case of deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. And, you know, it's the same patterns that you see. 
You're going to see capital withdrawals. The currencies are coming down. Asset prices are coming down. The most interesting thing is if you rebase the asset prices, particularly equities, back from the local currency into dollars, they're back to levels of 2011. So they've gone back three years. So you're going to see those. You're going to see higher interest rates. Indonesia is now borrowing at over 6% versus, say, 2.5-3% as recently as 18 months ago. And that's going to set off a problem in the domestic banking system that's going to cause problems in the real economy and we're also seeing a very disturbing pattern which we've seen before which is central bank intervention by way of higher interest rates currency intervention capital controls trying to control that which actually exacerbates the currency outflows we're seeing higher prices because of the weaker domestic currencies and we're seeing more food and energy subsidies being required budget deficits blowing out so look i accept that everything is different but there are similarities here and i think the major thing that i think worries me is in 2000 i think about 1997-98 when we're talking about asia the asian economies were quite small in the greater scheme of things Today, we're talking about the entire emerging market complex because we're talking about South America, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And so I think the flow on into developed markets is going to be a lot worse than people think. Because they're bigger, but, but shouldn't, shouldn't there be a little bit of, of strength that comes from being bigger? Oh, I agree. And I think uh, your previous guest's comments about the fact that they don't have fixed exchange rates, they also have bigger reserves, all of that, I think, are net positives. But the problem here is this issue of all that strength evaporates very quickly in a crisis because I was noticing the ad leading in to me was about what happens when there is a fire in a building in Hong Kong. <laughs> and the problem is, you know, in Hong Kong you call triple nine. Emerging markets don't call triple nine. They just basically herd together and head for the exit simultaneously. And I think that's going to be the real problem. And one thing I would draw your attention to is that this is going to feed back quite negatively into developed markets. Yeah. For instance, the weaker currencies is good for the emerging markets, but it's bad for the developed markets because if you look at the U.S., if you look at the Eurozone, you look at Japan, they're relying on exports to basically uh, improve their position. The second thing is these devaluations will set off a deflationary spiral in terms of goods prices particularly coming from emerging markets to developed markets. So, so, do you so think all that, that is not good. Do you think deflation then is a big problem that we need to look at uh, and address in 2014? I think disinflation or deflation is actually uh, a really serious issue. And you've seen a lot of mutterings from people like Mario Draghi about that. And the central bankers are all saying it's not a problem. I generally take the rule that if they're saying it's not a problem, it probably is a problem. Yes, uh, Christine Lagarde warned about it uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, it does seem a, a little bit scary in that um, the central banks in the West have done a lot of um, a lot of money printing and uh, quantitative easing. And if you get a new crisis developing, maybe they don't have the firepower they did before. If you think that that firepower was good at staving off crisis. Well, look, I think there are two things in what you're saying. One is you're assuming the central banks actually know what they're doing. And William White, who was the head of the economics department of the Bank of International Settlements, gave a talk last year in New York. We pretty much said the central banks have no idea what they're doing. They're just all making up the rule book as they go along. And, you know, that's not uh, a criticism. It's just a fact. The second thing is if you look at the weapons that governments have, there's fiscal policy, there's monetary policy, which is made up of interest rates and quantitative easing. All of those are now stretched to breaking point. So I think if we have a crisis, 
obviously, you're absolutely correct. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to come up with new ways of dealing with it. Though I think Abenomics uh, shows that you can push this for a fair while. And also, as you've seen in um, Japan, Shinzo Abe's way of dealing with it is to control the national broadcasters. And if anything goes wrong, at least nobody knows about it. Let me just ask you a really naive question. If what Paul Volcker did to crush inflation with high inflation levels raising interest rates very high, if deflation is the new worry, then why isn't lowering interest rates down to zero and beyond the proper path? Well, look, it works under certain conditions, but basically what you have is a real problem of demand in in the global economy. And you're assuming that all this money printing and the lower interest rates are going to set off demand. But the problem is all that demand in the lead up to 2007, 2008, or a good chunk thereof, was actually driven by build-up of debt. And people just don't have the balance sheets to take that on. And it's going to take a while for them to repair the balance sheets. And you can see what happens in Japan. In, they, they tried to repair the balance sheets. That took a long time. But then there is a generalized aversion to debt. And Japan's not unique in this. We saw that after the Great Depression in the United States and developed economies, when there was a massive aversion to debt for like 20, 30 years. Yes, one of the problems that we face with uh, slowing growth in China is that of the past uh, many years, China's contribution to global growth uh, has been about a third. So there hasn't been a lot of global growth, but um, we've seen strong growth in China. That means that, you know, that the entire global growth picture suffers a lot if China slows down. Do you think that China has a debt problem? And is that going to be the epicenter of what you fear? Look, I think China does have a problem, but the problem is that we don't know what the problem is (laughs) because the information coming out is not terribly clear. But I think you're absolutely correct. It could be that, it could be India, it could be a whole bunch of places. After the event, we always know what the epicenter of the crisis was. If you told me in 2007 it was going to be subprime, I wouldn't have believed you, but it turned out to be. If you told me in 1997-98 it was going to be the Thai Central Bank, I wouldn't have believed you. So we will find an epicenter, but I have a feeling also you've left out one thing, which is the political issues. If you look at Turkey, you look at Thailand, you look at many of these countries like Brazil, the politics is becoming very, very interesting or very difficult. So that trigger might actually be political as much as it is economic. And just a brief word on Hong Kong. I don't know if you watch our economy closely, but the banks have extended an awful lot of loans into China. Uh, do you worry that we here in Hong Kong could suffer in a big way if, uh, if there is a disruption in China? Indeed, I think you will suffer in terms of the disruption, but you'll also suffer because the Hong Kong lending, a lot of it's secured over real estate, and the real estate is dependent on outflows of money from China and Chinese buyers. So you'll get the double whammy of your exposure into China, but the outflow of money slowing will affect the domestic economy quite badly. And I think that is the risk that the HKMA has been warning about, to be very honest, for a fair while. Okay, Das, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Sajaji Das, ex-investment banker, author of Extreme Money, and a fairly regular guest here on the program. Well, markets are still positive. The Nikkei up 180 points. Looks like it's going to be an okay day, although Seoul has turned slightly negative. Australia up about two-thirds of a percent. We talked about a little pickup in gold, and oil price is now $109.70 an ounce, or uh, a barrel. Weather today, cloudy with some rain patches, uh, cool temperatures, just around 11 degrees uh, during the day today. And the outlook for the next few days, remaining cold straight through the week. The minimum temperatures down around 10 or below. 
Thanks very much for listening. Back Chat is next. But first, the news here on Radio 3. We get the latest in news with Janice Wong. Aid workers in Syria have evacuated more than 600 women, children and elderly men from the city of Homs. Mortar fire and shooting continued as the civilians boarded buses to leave the city after 18 months under siege by government forces. UN and Red Crescent teams also delivered food supplies. Khaled Ersusi of the Syrian Red Crescent said he hoped the ceasefire would be extended to allow up to 900 more people to leave. We are pushing for that. We ask the UN to negotiate more uh, to extend the ceasefire. I believe from the government side, it's in their interest to extend it because they are willing to receive more civilians and they are encouraging them to exit to other areas. So we will have to see if all the parties to the conflict will agree to that. The European Union says it will review ties with Switzerland after it voted in a referendum to restrict EU immigration. The vote passed by the narrowest of margins, 0.3 of a percent, with rural areas in favour of restoring immigration quotas and cities against. 